long ones. Funny, I mean, like editing these, like ter- Teresa's is always the exact same. It's pretty spot on. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty consistent. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's very consistent with it. Like if you if you listen to the previous episodes, l- listen to it, and you'd be like, oh yeah, that is oh. exactly the same. Well. You've been rehearsing. The best one too. Mine always sounds confused a little bit. I think. No, it. <laughs> it must have been all those previous years spooking people in my past life or something. Got me ready. <laughs> so what? So what is this episode? Oh, t- let me welcome people first. <laughs> <laughs> welcome podcast <laughs> my weird little podcast um this episode i guess would be the one with really big disasters yeah or something i don't know <laughs> that sounds like a, that sounds like a dumb title yeah. i say that every time though that's what's just about to say that too yeah i say this every time yeah. so we'll figure I it could out say, by the end. you could say big yeah. trouble in little cities but i think yours is on boston so it's not a little city exactly Centralia is mine's but... in Cleveland. Oh, yours in Cleveland? Oh, oh yeah, I didn't. I didn't tell what? you that Pat's gonna do one, and I'm doing a surprise oh. one today. That is in Cleveland. Yay, a surprise! Um, because I came across this. Yeah, so then we're gonna do three. Mine's quick though. Don't worry. Um, I came across this story and I wanted to do it, so I was like, Pat, you do the the Boston molasses disaster, and I'm gonna do this story that takes place in Cleveland. So I guess it's not a small city. It was at the time, yeah. I guess. Well, actually, no. no. Okay, it so... It's never been a small city. <laughs> well, my title didn't work at all. Only yeah, only for yep. my story, because Centralia <laughs> is a very small city, so... But, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, especially now, yep. right? We'll get to that, though. <laughs> but, yeah. I feel like I need to apologize mm. in advance, because, like, we're all pretty tired like you said you had a long day yeah. Pat and I got our booster shots and I slightly feel like a little sick oh, right no. now like it hit me like two hours ago just like I was all of a sudden got like super tired and I was like oh cool <laughs> <laughs> that's this but Aww. it's fine it's good because like I'm gonna I'm gonna get sleep tonight and it'll be fine and yeah yeah and we're gotta We'll have had yeah, our boosters. Yeah, you guys we'll have had That's our boosters. Good. Yeah, so go out and get your booster. Get your shot. booster. Get your booster. And if shot. you haven't gotten your first and second <laughs> vaccine, do that, obviously. But yeah, yeah, just turn yeah. this off right now and go do that. <laughs> go schedule your appointment I mean, right now. You could probably listen to this and get the vaccine at the same you time. You could. That, that's true. You, know? you could. Yeah. There's really so many ways you can enjoy yeah. my weird little podcast, even while getting your vaccine. So go and get it. <laughs> <laughs> take take it with you and listen the to CDC it. The CDC recommends listening yes. to this. Oh, yeah. They do. What is <laughs> We should definitely do. Oh, sorry. I was going to say we should definitely do an episode, though, on uh, various um, plagues and viruses and things like that. And like the Spanish flu, like this is not the first time no. that we've like we as a society have had to like deal with a, an outbreak or a pandemic. You exactly. know, it's just in mm-hmm. in modern society in our lifetime. This is the first time we've had to deal in our lifetime and like the lifetime slightly ahead of ours or behind right. ours. 
I don't know. I'm tired. <laughs> well, it's, it's weird because it's like, it's like you think about what was that? Like 1912 was like the last like big yeah. pandemic, I yeah, guess, you know? So like, yeah, time. it really is yeah. like, an like that's, that's long enough for people to argue with it. You know, like it's almost as if like, man, I wish this would have happened in the fucking seventies. So that when people be like, Oh yeah, that was really bad. Let's make sure to keep our masks right. on. <laughs> you know? Not like, do that again. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, because then then they would be a little bit more connected to it. You know, more connected to yeah. the pain and tragedy of it. You know, yeah. even though it's killed more people than AIDS oh at this God. point. Wow. Yeah. Right. Right. But let's move on to some more happy stories instead. Super happy yeah. stories. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, also, like we're gonna have a meeting in two weeks and we're going to go over what we're going to do for the next set of stories and i promise some of them will be happier they're not all going to be tragic deaths and horrible sad things but today today's episode definitely is so (laughs) that's okay um yeah so wait who wants to go first should we go chronologically like we normally do oh Mine takes place in 1929. Yours 1920s, Mia's like uh, 1960s, 1962. I'm I'm 1919. Oh, okay, okay. cool. All right, all right, go ahead then. <laughs> all right, uh, really wanted to go third, but uh, <laughs> no, it's joking. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pat, Pat is Pat's doing a story today. Yay, way, so Patrick. So, did, did you? Did I gave you him permission him? to do one. <laughs> yeah. Did you already introduce no. anybody? I don't, I oh no, know. that's Patrick. <laughs> as long as he does it weird, uh, he does it well. No, I don't know. <laughs> no, but yeah. you introduced your you introduced yourselves though, right? I, I, did I miss just no? Miss that I didn't. I didn't do any of oh, that. Okay. okay. At this whole intro here. Um, Mm. Yay! So welcome to my weird little podcast. <laughs> uh, today's host uh, with the Boston Molasses Disaster is Patrick. You're in Las Vegas. Yay! Uh, we also have hey. wonderful Teresa bringing us the story of Cin- Centralia. And I hope I said that hey. correctly. All the way from Acton, California. Right. Teresa! <laughs> and me... Me, Tia, sitting here on my bed with my cat. I'm going to talk about the Cleveland Clinic x-ray incident. Yay! Which does have to tie in, does tie in with Las Vegas where I'm at right now. But that's a surprise at the end. So we'll get there. Okay. Uh, Anyways. Interesting. Yeah. I'm definitely interested to hear about those as well. Cool. Honestly, like... I, I'm a little, uh, what's the word? Like, I, I'm, I don't know if it's a guy thing, but it's like, you know, like all those like Roland Emmerich films, you know, like, uh, he does, I have no um, idea who that is. <laughs> Roland Emmerich basically, he's directed all the movies where everything dies, like, uh, The Day After Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, okay. Like, yeah, I have like just that. like apocalyptic big, movies. Yeah. I can't, I feel stupid that I can't think of any other ones, but they're just a bunch of movies like that. Um, so what like this, like San Andreas, is that him? That's right. That's another one. I'm pretty sure too. So like yeah. Big, yeah. Uh, but yeah, basically <laughs> he's destroyed the Independence Day. I think was his okay. too. Where he like so basically yeah he's destroyed the planet in all kinds of different ways. Um, but like it's be 
it's it's because like there is a huge draw for disasters, and I think that's why this is going to be kind of a great episode because people love to listen to like you know what I mean. Like it's kind of an unfortunate. It's like the true crime. It's like the true crime thing. You know, you don't want to hear that a lot of people have died, but you're kind of like, oh my god, that many people died. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, this this is just totally right up my alley because uh, I definitely am very interested in how these things happen and how they were allowed to happen. You know, because um, it, it always usually comes down to like faulty, you know, something, you know, like some somebody just not thinking human error. Um, yeah. So, my, yeah, I'm doing the right. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm doing the Boston molasses flood, um, which I did tell you earlier, there was the Boston massacre, but you're right. That I think that was just a newspaper headline that I wrote, <laughs> read, you know, which which I guess is is a little offensive, so I'll, oh, I'll probably edit yeah. that out later. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but 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 yeah, the Boston uh, molasses flood. Um, this disaster occurred at the Purity Distilling Distilling Company, uh, which is on Five Twenty Nine Commercial Street, which is near uh, Keeney Square. Uh, if you're familiar with Boston at all, that's like right in the middle of everything, right at the harbor which was interesting because I kind of looked this up to kind of, because I was born in Boston. So we definitely frequented the city a lot. I, d- I wasn't born in the city, but yeah. you know, every, how, everybody how in Boston you, lives in small towns and then you go to the city on the weekends. How would um, you but it's pronounce like right that now, in, in Bostonian? How do you pronounce the street <laughs> in Bostonian? Uh, commercial street near Keeney Square. Uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> that was satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> There's packing spots that are like butter. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's a uh, yeah, five twenty nine Commercial Street near Keeney Square. Yeah, that's basically like kind of like there's like uh like they have like a couple of like old warships parked there, so like tourists can go on there. And then there's the aquarium, which is really fucking cool. Um, but anyway, so back then this was just hugely industrial. It was just a harbor. It was used as a harbor. So. Um, molasses, uh, which was made there or which was kept there, uh, can be fermented to produce ethanol, which was very popular in, uh, alcoholic beverages. And it was a key component in munitions. So they, they used this, uh, specifically for world war one, uh, mostly, you know, but it was, uh, you know, government would purchase it from him. So it was obviously a good thing to have there. Um, it, it was, uh, mostly stored there by the uh, commercial street tank company, which was a harborside company. They would offload molasses from the ships and store it uh, at the purity ethanol plant, which was uh, down the street at Willow street and Everty's way in Cambridge, which I don't know how to say that in Bostonian. Um, <laughs> the, the tank itself, right. <laughs> Willow Street in Everty's Way in fucking Cambridge. Uh, the, molasses <laughs> tank, yeah. the molasses tank stood 50 feet tall, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it was 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter. It contained as much as 2.3 million U.S. gallons. Um, but that's interesting to note because apparently they never actually filled it to the brim to test it. Which is like, bing, like red flag number one. Um, so, but I'll get to that later. So we're just going to kind of go through the event first. Uh, on January fifteenth, nineteen nineteen, 
uh, Boston, the temperatures in Boston had risen above 40 degrees, which if you know about Boston at all, it's never that temperature, even in like, like in the summer, it'll get above 40, but definitely not January. Yeah. Uh, so it was definitely, um, definitely weird for, cause if you're storing molasses, you know, you, the changing temperatures is going to change the viscosity of the fluid. Um, so the climbing rap, uh, rapidly from the frigid temperatures, uh, of the preceding day and the previous day, a ship had delivered a fresh load of molasses, which had been warmed to reduce it, reduce its viscosity, so you could transfer it easier. Because if it's cold, you know, you would tip it and it would just, you know, just slowly pour out. It would never, you know, take forever. So they would warm it first to do that, which makes sense. Um, so possibly due to the thermal expansion of the older, uh, colder molasses already inside the tank, the tank burst open and collapsed at approximately 12.30 p.m. Witnesses reported that they felt the ground shake and heard a roar as it collapsed, a long, rumb- a long rumble similar to the passing of a train. Others reported a tremendous crashing, a deep growling, a thunderclap-like bang, and a sound like a machine gun as the rivets shot out Whoa. of the tank. Jesus. Apparently several pe- people were hit by these rivets, and they were shooting out, like like it says, like a machine gun. They were shooting out like oh bullets because God. of the pressure. Wow. Right, That's yeah. Crazy. The density of the molasses is 1.4 tons per cubic meter, uh, which basically forty percent more dense than oh, water, okay. uh, resulting in the in the molasses having a a lot of potential energy. So a bit, it's kind of like um, like I would compare it to like a car with torque. You know, like torque is what pull, it makes it able to pull something heavy because it's able to generate that amount of force. You know, rather than speed. So basically, it's it's an unstoppable wave. Um, the collapse translated this energy into a wave of molasses 25 feet high at its peak, um, and that's a report. This is this is also 1919, so like some of these yeah. reports are, you know, now a hundred hundred years old. So like, well, this there was other ones that said 15 feet tall. Others said 30 to 50 feet tall. The wave. But that doesn't even make sense because the tank itself was only 50 feet tall. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I don't know how it would have gotten as high as the tank. But but they in the, the average seemed to be 25 feet high, which is a really high fucking wave of yeah. anything. Um, it moved at 35 miles per hour. The wave was of sufficient force to drive steel panels of the burst tank against the girders of the uh, Boston's elevated railway. Uh, so it actually took out the train, uh, the, the basically the train itself, like the whole thing. It was it's an elevated train, so it took out the supporting girders underneath it, and then pushed the train off the tracks as well. Um, Stephen Puleo describes how nearby buildings were swept off their foundations and crushed. Several blocks were flooded to a depth of two to three feet, and this is in molasses. Waist deep covered the street and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled a form, whether it was an animal or a human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass, showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies stuck on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper they the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. 
I was also reading another report, um, and it was uh, from I think I have it, uh, Boston Magazine dot com, but it was like them um, remembering the the tragedy a hundred years later. It's like from an article two years ago, but they were talking about uh, this one guy's account, and it was uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, that was from uh, the NPR's site because it was an audio transcription. But it was, it was from uh, them walking. It, they were like one of the first people because basically they ordered like the Navy that was close in there to come into town and start rescuing people. And there was some guy, they fe- they saw this guy's arm and they went to grab him to help him out, you know, and as they were pulling him out, he was so stuck that they ripped his arm off and his, his body stayed there. What? Uh, oh my God. Isn't that Yeah, nuts? it is. Wow. Oh my God. The Boston Globe reported that people were picked up by a rush of air and hurled many feet. Others had debris hurled at them from the rush of sweet-smelling air. A truck was picked up and hurled into Boston Harbor. After the initial wave, the molasses became viscous, exacerbated by the cold temperatures. So as it's hot, it's actually hot molasses coming in a wave. But then as it's coming out into the Boston, you know, streets and stuff, it's cooling. So it's making it even stickier Ooh, and thicker yeah. as it's going out. Ooh, God. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Sounds, um, about 150 people were injured and 21 people and several horses were killed. Some were crushed and drowned by the molasses or by the b- debris that it carried within. The wounded included people, horses, and dogs. Coughing fits became one of the most common ailments after the initial blast. Edwards Park wrote of one child's experience in a 1983 article for the Smithsonian. Anthony Distasio, walking homeward with his sisters from the Michelangelo School, was picked up by the wave and carried, tumbling on its crest, almost as though he were surfing. Then he grounded and the molasses rolled him like a pebble as the wave diminished. He heard his mother call his name and couldn't answer. His throat was so clogged with the smothering goo. He passed out, then opened his eyes to find three of his four sisters staring at him. So he like actually made it out. Oh my least. God. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's insane. Like just being swallowed by a wave of goo. Like that's, mm. oh man. <laughs> sounds like a nightmare um, comes to life. So yeah, like, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, like I said, the the first to the scene were 116 cadets under the direction of Lieutenant Commander H.J. Copeland, who was from the USS Nantucket, uh, which was a training ship uh, of the Massachusetts National School, uh, or sorry, Nautical School, which is now apparently the Massachusetts Maritime Academy, uh, which was docked um, nearby at the playground pier. The cadets ran several blocks toward the accident and entered into the knee-deep flood of molasses to pull out the survivors, while others worked to keep curious onlookers from getting in the way of the rescuers. The Boston Police, Red Cross, Army, and Navy personnel soon arrived. Some nurses from the Red Cross dived into the molasses, while others tend to the injured, uh, keeping them warm and feeding the exhausted workers. Uh, Many of these people worked through the night and injured were so numerous that doctors and surgeons set up a makeshift hospital in a nearby building. Researchers, or sorry, rescuers found it difficult to make their way through the syrup to help victims, and four days elapsed before they stopped searching. Many of the dead were so glazed over in molasses that they were hard to recognize. Other victims were swept into Boston Harbor and were found three to four months after the disaster. Jeez. Yeah. 
In the wake of the accident, 119 residents brought a class action lawsuit against the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, uh, which was uh, USIA, which is what had uh, bought um, Purity Distilling uh, two years earlier. It was one of the first class action suits in Massachusetts and is considered a milestone in paving the way for modern corporate regulation. The company claimed that the tank had been blown up by anarchists. Uh, 165 of, uh, because, sorry, dun, 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 uh, because of some of the alcohol produced was to be used in making munitions. Uh, but a court appointed auditor found uh, USIA responsible after three years of hearings and the company ultimately paid $628,000 in damages, which is now nine, $9.37 million. Uh, relatives of those kills reportedly received around 7,000 per victim. Uh, that was something I was reading about too, was, uh, it was actually this guy's job to decide, uh, which it still is someone's job today is to decide, um, during these mass casualty events, uh, from the awarded damages, they would decide who gets money decide. Like, basically they were saying like, if you died initially right off the bat, you got $7,000, but there was this one guy, I think it was like a firefighter or something. Wait, sorry, one second. Uh, da, 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 da. Um, yeah, he was trapped in the basement of a firehouse in a 18-inch crawl space and tried to keep his head above the molasses for four hours before he was finally asphyxiated. So they gave him uh, 7500 instead of 7000 They gave the family. So it was somebody's job to decide, oh, okay, this person died worse so they deserve five hundred oh, more. Like that's God. that's that's crazy. Oh wow! Yeah. Um. So the cleanup crews used salt water from a fireboat to wash away the molasses and sand to absorb it, and the harbor was brown with molasses until summer. The cleanup in the immediate area took weeks, with several hundred people contributing to the effort, and it took longer to clean the rest of Greater Boston and its suburbs. Rescue workers. Suburbs, sorry. Rescue workers, cleanup crews, and sightseers had tracked molasses through the streets and spread it to subway platforms, to the seats inside trains and streetcars, to pay tel- to pay telephone handsets, and into homes, and to countless other places. It was reported that everything that a Bostonian touched was sticky. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Um, so several factors might have contributed to this. Uh, the first is the belief that the tank may have leaked from the very first day uh, that it was filled in 1915. Um, like I told you guys uh, before, it was never actually completely filled with water and tested like you would with anything. Um the tank was also constructed poorly and tested insufficiently, and carbon dioxide production might have raised the internal pressure due to the fermentation in the tank, since they were using it to make ethanol. Uh, warmer weather the previous day would have assisted in the building in building this pressure as the air temperature rose uh, from two to forty one degrees over that period, which is a huge increase in temperature. Yeah. Wow. Uh, the failure. The f- occurred from a manhole cover near the base of the tank and a crack there possibly grew to the point of critical failure. The tank had been filled to capacity only eight times since it was built a few years earlier, putting the walls under an intermittent cyclical load. Um, A lot of people also believe that Purity Distilling Company was trying to outrace Prohibition 
which was set to be ratified uh, the next day, uh, which is really interesting. Jeez. Which also brings back the whole like anarchist thought, you know, like the whole like plot, like, yeah. you know, like maybe that's how they were trying to give that credibility. I was going to ask. But yeah, they were, if with all that. Mo- oh, no, go ahead. So well, I was that? just going to ask, like, did that have, I was thinking about the anarchist thing and I was like, did that have anything to do with like World War One? Or something like that, or maybe, yeah. But I mean, after after thinking about it, the whole prohibition thing, it seemed like that would be more like with that passing, you know. Um, but also, like, why 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 would they blow it up unless it was like a competing company or something? But there was only really uh, two co- or one company at the time, and they were the, they were that company in the areas. But yeah, it was definitely really weird that that was happening at the same time. But also, a lot of people think that they rushed to the tank so that way it could hold as much as possible. So if that if if prohibition did happen, they would still have all this product that they could sell on the side. Yeah. Um. Dun, 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 dun. An injury after the disaster revealed that Arthur Gell, uh, which was USIA's treasurer, neglected basic safety tests while overseeing the construction of the tank, such as filling it with water, insufficient to check for leaks, and he ignored warning signs such as groaning noises each time the tank was filled. He had no architectural or engineering experience. Oh, God. None. This sounds and so <laughs> so similar to the uh, what is that Mulholland uh, guy? Oh right, yeah, the dam, oh, the dam, yeah, yeah the, dam. the dam that killed all those people. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. Oh wow, which we talked about in Hollywood's Haunted, but yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Check out that episode on Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. The <laughs> <laughs> worst. Who we're slightly affiliated with. We're, they're, they're good friends of ours. <laughs> they're, they're good people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, when filled with molasses, the tank leaked so badly um, that it was... Sorry, where was it? Uh, the tank leaked so badly that it was pointed, painted brown to hide the leakage. Local residents collected leaked molasses for their homes. <laughs> Apparently there was like a thing that kids knew like, oh, it's leaking. Like we can go check it. We can go collect some again today. A, a 2014 investigation applied modern engineering analysis and found that the steel was half as thick as it should have been for a tank its size. So there's just like red flags all over the place. Yeah. Uh, e- even with the lax standards of the day, and it also lacked manganese, uh, which I looked up because uh, I really didn't know. It was, it's, kind of, it's like basically like a... Um, uh, like a more easily used metal um, when it comes to um, sealing stuff oh, off. Okay. Uh, the tanks, the tanks' rivets were also apparently flawed, and cracks first formed at the rivet holes. Uh, what was another? Oh yeah, this I thought this was kind of interesting. In 2016, a team of scientists and students at Harvard conducted an extensive study of the disaster, gathering data from many sources, including uh, newspaper articles, maps, weather reports. Uh, the student researchers also studied the behavior of cold corn syrup flooding a scale model of the affected neighborhood, which is kind of cool to watch if you guys ever want to check that out. Uh, the researchers concluded that the reports of the high speed of the flood were credible. Two days before the disaster, warmer molasses had been added to the tank, reducing the viscosity of the fluid. 
so when the tank collapsed, the fluid cooled quickly as it spread until it reached Boston's winter evening temperatures, and then the viscosity increased dramatically. Uh, dun, 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 dun. And then there was a couple other cool things that I wanted to mention. Um, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I already said that they they blame terrorists. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I'm just laughing so, at your. I'm thinking little ditties in between. What? Your little dun 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 do do do. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't Everybody's laughing at the fact that they thinking. blamed terrorists. That it was a delay in <laughs> recording. That part's not okay. funny. Um, That's sorry. A- that's okay. Um, with some of my transitions, I don't think I've done any on this podcast, but sometimes with my transitional phrases, I start singing. So I know, like, I'll start singing the words, like, sing song, like, <laughs> like I do it at work all the time. Like, I'll be like, okay, and now we're going to do this. Like, I don't even know where it comes from, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I can identify. <laughs> that That's hilarious. Um, so yeah, just a couple of like interesting things I wanted to say. Uh, apparently, uh, the, like, like you said before, a lot of horses died, uh, their horses, uh, it was in a stable right next door. Uh, half of them were killed instantly. Uh, but the other half, which was like almost, uh, 10 horses, uh, were killed that night because they had to be shot by Boston police. They were so mm-hmm. enmeshed in molasses that they could never be extricated. Mm-hmm. So... Apparently, there was at the end of the night they couldn't get these horses out, so you just hear gunshots, just uh, killing. They get killed, had to kill ten horses just right there. Horrible. Yeah, so so messed up. Um, apparently, it led to uh, one of the, a uh, recorded phone call. Uh, send all available rescue vehicles and personnel Im- immediately. There's a wave of molasses coming down Commercial Street. <laughs> Which is apparently like an actual phone call at that. Wow! Like, wow. It's just a great. It's just a great. Phone call. <laughs> yeah, I won't make you do that in a Bostonian accent. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's a good okay. idea. <laughs> um. So apparently, there was a one hero in this in this story, uh, train conductor Royal Albert Lehman. Uh, the elevated passenger line that ran above, uh, right above Commercial Street. Um, like I told you, the big piece of the tank severs the main support. Uh, a train had just gone by and jumped the tracks. The conductor is able Whoa. to get out from his, from his vestibule, make his way across the tangled wreck, wreckage, and stop another train from plunging to the street below. Uh, the Whoa. passenger tra- trains ran every seven minutes. Uh, so that's pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's pretty, that's pretty damn quick. Yeah. Yeah. Like I totally saved totally saved way more lives by doing that. Um and apparently, yes, it did really smell like molasses in North End Boston for decades. <laughs> for decades. Um, wow. Uh this yeah. because uh, apparently like uh, uh I was reading a quote from uh, this guy who had been doing tours about about uh, the Boston Harbor and the, it, there's like a big plaque there and shit now. So like that's obviously like one of their stops. Uh, and he said, uh, he, he said, uh, there was this guy on his tour who was a meter reader for Boston gas. Um, and apparently he had to go to a lot of basements and he said that a lot of basements in the area reeked Whoa. of molasses. 
And he said, like, well, that makes, he said, that makes sense because some of the molasses was so flooded that there was filling up most of the first, first floor. So that means the basement is flooded. Oh my syrup. God. I cannot <laughs> imagine. I would be so right, pissed. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, oh my God, this is a mess. <laughs> like in, like in <laughs> Illinois, you know, we're used to the flooding with water, you know, but gosh, I cannot imagine molasses. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, right, Water's yeah. bad enough, but. Um, but yeah, that was. The, there was a, a couple other ones that I thought were interesting. They were kind of similar. Um, the Dublin Whiskey Fire. Um, there was like uh, the there was thirteen deaths, but it wasn't because of anybody um, uh, choking on smoke or burning alive or anything. It was because uh, a fire broke out, and then all of, it broke a couple of the tanks. So there's just whiskey just pouring into the streets. So all these people are like free whiskey. So they all got drunk and 13 deaths from alcohol poisoning. Jesus. Because, because they were just drinking like just like who knows what it what it mixed with. Oh, God. There, you know? yeah. um, <clears throat> then uh, there was the Honolulu molasses spill, which actually happened in 2013. Um, this is uh, basically this company supplies like all the sugar and molasses for like Hawaii. Um, but the, the, it, it, it was so it was actually basically like this one. It was really close to the beach and it flooded into the beach and killed like several coral reefs. Like any fish that was in the area just sank oh, to the no. floor. Wow. Um, then there was the London beer flood, uh, which was um, we actually when we were in London, Tia, we walked by this, the, I think it was the old dominion theater. I think is what it was called. Um, but, uh, that's where this, uh, beer place, uh, brewery used to be, but basically the whole thing, um, flooded. I can't remember. They didn't say exactly what happened. Uh, but the, it was a huge tank, you know, burst, uh, and it killed eight people and five of them were mourners for a two-year-old's funeral at a grave site rec- right next door. Oh, my God. Oh. Yeah. And then there was the Pepsi fruit juice flood. But everyone was all right. <laughs> Everything was good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it, spilled, it spilled into the river, and they tested the river, and they were like, no, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to end it on a high note. Way to go, Pepsi. Pepsi. Cool. It's the choice Yay. of a new generation. No. <laughs> oh, shit. But yeah, that's the Boston molasses flood. Um, yeah, that's just crazy. That's, uh, it's, it is interesting, though, that this was one of the first cases where uh, a company was actually held responsible. Because uh, apparently, I mean, 1919, that wasn't right. a thing. And also, it wasn't a thing for, for businesses to have to be approved by governments to do things that were con- that were that on such a large scale. So now people, there has to be regulations and a government, you know, there has to be a, there has to be two people, like a government contractor and an inspector, you know, that actually comes through and says, hey, that's, that shouldn't be built like that, you know, that makes, and I mean, but these things still happen, you know, like that, that Miami apartment complex that went down like uh, at the beginning of the year. No, that makes total sense though, with Um, the new regulations coming about, because you said 1919, so we weren't that far from the beginning of the 
that last century. And that's when all those, um, whatchamacallit, the, with the warehouses and stuff, like the, the workplace regulations is what I'm getting at. So they right, just yeah. started right, putting yeah. those in place then. So it wasn't that long. So that makes total sense. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's definitely. Yeah, definitely it really is. Yeah. So, I mean, whether it's, it's cause I was talking about that before, like it's, you know, we always, luckily we have these laws and stuff and these like regulations and stuff, but it always has to, something has to go wrong, really, really bad for it to, to happen. You yeah. Know? For like, a change. I mean, I yeah. yeah. Even recently though, we're still learning, yep. you know? Yep. Right. Yeah. Still learning. So that's true. And who would predict that a giant flood of molasses would kill 20, 21 people? I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm not you know, like laughing you know I mean? at like, that. It just sounds see- silly. It's, but yeah. No, it's, it seems yeah. comical. If someone said that to you, like, oh, man, what if a giant tidal wave of molasses just comes through the street? Then, you know, you'd, you'd probably laugh at it and be like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'd have some for my coffee or something. You know what I mean? Like, so you'd just be a dick about it. I'll make some gingerbread you know, cookies. It's never happened before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 funny. That's just a crazy, crazy right, way to go. So, um, my story is similar to Pat's, but uh, about ten years later, not any happier or anything. But I got most of my information, if not all of my information, by a great from a great YouTube channel called Fascinating Horror. It is all very similar stories like this natural disasters, human error disasters, factory explosions, the sort. Um, The last time I used them as a resource was on The Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast, on an episode I did about the Beverly Hills Supper Club, which uh, that was the one time when I accidentally did a story that was not based in Hollywood. I just saw Beverly Hills Supper Club and assumed that it was Beverly Hills, California, which it was not at all. Um, it actually was like Beverly Hills, uh, Ohio or something like that. Uh, yeah. It was just called the Beverly Hills Supper Club, but it was like in Kansas City or something like that. I don't remember. But that that was like a tragic fire that was in this club and they didn't have enough exits and they didn't have enough uh they didn't have a sprinkler system and people didn't believe that you know this fire could actually happen so when a guy was actually trying to warn people they didn't believe him and it was just like this whole mess so um fascinating horror is great if you're very interested in these type of large scale disasters it's very gruesome But anyways, without further ado, let me get into my story, which is the Cleveland Clinic x-ray incident. So the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, opened on February 28, 1921. It was a single building, nonprofit organization, which was pretty, um, pretty much one of the first of its kind. And it was a base of operation for professionals that had a range of specialties. So this was like a very cutting edge, very modern hospital of its time. This is 1929. And the point of the hospital was to provide patient care, education, and uh, opportunities 
for valuable medical research. The Cleveland Clinic revolutionized the treatment of people with diabetes by making use of the new medicine or the then new medicine, insulin. Uh, they were at the forefront of cardiac medicine. They pushed for more comfortable conditions for patients in wards. So they were very, very ahead of their time. So by 1922, the clinic grew from a single building to several buildings, including a four-story outpatient clinic, an adjoining hospital, and several houses for long-term patients. In 1924, a brand new inpatient building was constructed. And in 1928, a new research laboratory was constructed. So on May 15th, 1929, there, uh, it was another busy day at the hospital. There were patients and uh, nurses all coming to work and patients being treated, undergoing diagnoses. Um, and in their outpatient building, a fire began. Now, these people weren't there long-term. They were just there to get diagnosis or treatments. This is outpatient. They're only supposed to be there for a short time. This isn't like long-term patients. So these people are just visiting the hospital. And a fire began in a sub-basement room used to store their x-ray film. So in 1929, x-rays were made out of nitrocelluloids. X-rays were made of nitrocellulose film. Uh, when when they would catch fire, one they would catch fire easily, but they would also emit a poisonous gas, and they also resisted water. In fact, when you put water on nitrocellulose cellulose film that is on fire, it would increase the production of the poisonous gas. Oh, good. <laughs> So this is uh, this is bad. Yeah. So this is this is not good. No, not so good. The cause, yeah. The cause of the fire was unclear. Most likely what was to blame was an unprotected light bulb that was situated uh too close to a stack of film. Once the film ignited, the rest followed, producing a huge blaze and a whole lot of poisonous gas. The gas seeped up into the building, uh, mostly going unnoticed. But as more and more film burned, it started to burst into explosions. And the blast damaged the building, but it also burst uh, the fumes into pipes and doorways and into the vents. So at one point, it's in every part of the building. So doctors and nurses were killed before even being able to rise from their desk. Oh patients my God. died. Patients died instantly. Uh, people had no time to even think about escaping before they even realized what was happening. So uh, here's a quote. Oh, is my phone going up? Here's a quote from the Associated Press. <coughs> This is like about the aftermath. 
surgical equipment lay ready for use in the examination room. The x-ray, in the x-ray developing room, a roll of film was stretched to dry. A wheelchair with the blanket thrown aside blocked a balcony overlooking the waiting room. The fumes were so strong as to act almost instantly. Pedestrians caught outside the building fell to the ground and lay unconscious until dragged to safety when the gas lifted. One woman smashed a third floor window and was preparing to leap as firemen spread a life net. She stood poised, the amber gas swirled about her shoulders and she collapsed, falling inside the building. <coughs> so, rescuers did their best to save people, but they were also being um, affected by the toxic gas. A witness said that they were overcome by the gas and they were a city block away from the hospital. Oh my God, wow. So only when, only when the gas had dissipated uh, could a rescue be made. Um, many people risked and even sacrificed their lives to drag people from the building. And in uh, this story, I, there is also a hero, a policeman, Ernest Staub, S-T-A-A-B. I'm very bad with names, but Staub, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce his name. Policeman Ernest Staub, he entered the building again and again and dragged 21 people before he was overcome and passed away from the fumes. 21 people. Now, the clinic was devastated. It was severely damaged, but a philanthropist named Samuel Mather stepped in and provided alternate accommodations nearby to continue to treat patients, many of them being the survivors with lung damage. Re uh, recovery was slow. Sorry, many of them being survivors with lung, da lung damage. Recovery was slow for these patients. Uh, given uh, oxygen, some, okay, they were given oxygen. Some died weeks later. The, the total fatalities came to 123 people. Oh, my God. Yeah. <clears throat> so the hospital, though, was found not to be at fault. The way the film had been stored was in line with what was required at the time. And the gu guidelines for storing the film and other hazardous materials were revised and applied nationwide, preventing more disasters. So because of this, like, they have come up with better regulations, uh, storing even hazardous materials in locked away cabinets that are metal or fireproof. You know, just, it sucks, though, that there has to be a tragedy, you know, before we can think, you know, that these things are going to happen. But, yeah, you know, and sometimes, like, um, how do I put this? Sometimes, like, we advance quicker than we can think of everything bad that could happen, like they had advancements in medical research and, you know, treatment of people, cardiac uh, care and people with diabetes, but maybe not everything was thought through in the process of building this hospital, you know, but how could they know? Like really, how can most of us know until the disaster happens? 
Right. So, however, good news, the building was completely renovated and restored and still remains to this day. It is part of a sprawling compact complex of facilities. It is a huge campus with several uh, buildings around the city and has research facilities in many other cities. It is one of the best rated hospitals in America and one of the best for cardiac care. Um, one thing now, uh, sorry, let me go back a bit. Uh, it is a huge campus. Has several buildings around the city and has uh, research facilities in many other cities, including Las Vegas. Yay! Because about uh, right behind me, behind that other building over there, that purple building, which is the World Market Center outside my window on the other side. Maybe I shouldn't tell people where I live. Um, <laughs> Basically, outside, uh, about a block or so from where I'm at right now. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. He, is, he is just very close to where I am. <laughs> very close very to where close. I am. Uh, right uh, next to the World Market Center, which is a huge convention center here, is the uh, Cleveland Clinic. The Lou Ruvo, damn last names, Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Research. And it is this beautiful building here in Las Vegas. It um, looks, I should look up who designed this building. One second, I should have looked this up earlier. <laughs> but it's, it looks like um, kind of like the Walt Disney Concert Hall yeah, it looks like in, in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Well, I know what that looks like. So kind of very unique then, right? Yeah. Let me look it up on... The... Was dying to designed by Frank Gehry. Yeah, oh. I, he did design the, the concert hall, didn't he? The Walt Disney Concert Hall. So uh, it's a beautiful building, and they actually they have a lot of fundraisers there and different things. Oh wow! To the screen, yeah, that's but cool. That is here in Las Vegas, and it is a extension of the Cleveland Clinic, and they do research for memory disorders there, oh, and I'm sure okay. other stuff as well. But it is a brain research. Uh, building. And so anyways, the Cleveland Clinic is uh, one of the best rated hospitals in America and one of the best for cardiac care. There is also a huge memorial on the first floor of the building. And that is the Cleveland Clinic X-ray incident. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just thought that that one was interesting and that I would share that with you um mostly yeah. because like i was very curious what this building was that's very close to here because of how beautiful the design is for it and i was watching fascinating horror and that picture of that building popped up at the end and i was like oh wow that's interesting i definitely want yeah. to talk about this this incident well yeah because so, that's just that's so terrifying you know like that that yeah. happened from well, the they were just breathing it in and 
people, I mean, I'm sure that like after two or three breaths of this, you're dead, you know? Yeah. It's just this guy. That's, yeah, that's, that's horrible. Yeah. I think that's worse than drowning. I think that's worse than drowning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think drowning in molasses is worse because you see it coming. I think I would rather it be just a very quick death, if not at all. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, what do you got? What do you got for us here, Teresa? Hmm. Okay. Well, we've got more disasters from me. <laughs> so, Ooh. yeah, I know you're excited, right? I am. <laughs> okay. This is, yeah, this is, um, yeah. Uh, like Tia said at the start of the episode, yeah, they're not not exactly happy so it doesn't get any better but that's okay because that's why you're here right you want to hear all this stuff i do so let me tell you about it uh <laughs> i would like to talk about centralia now some Ooh. people have heard of yeah <laughs> some people have heard of centralia uh but i'm sure there are people out there that haven't but if you haven't uh, essentially, what what happened in Centralia was that there was a mine fire that happened uh, on May 27th, 1962. But before I get to all the details on that, let me just give everybody some background about Centralia quickly. So... I did say it was a mine fire that happened, and that mine fire essentially destroyed the whole town. Um, and it, Centralia is located, I'm sorry, it's in Pennsylvania, Centralia, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. And it is located in the anthracite coal region of the Appalachian Mountains. So I'll get into what anthracite coal is a little bit later and why it's important, but it is very important to Centralia. It's in Columbia County, Pennsylvania, at the intersection of uh, Pennsylvania Route 61 and 42. And Pennsylvania Route 61, I'll be talking about a little bit later as well. So uh, that's why I brought it up because it's important. It was founded in 1866 by a man named Alexander Ray, who was a mining engineer. And Centralia, the whole history of it, and still maybe partially to this day, it's a coal mining town. It peaked in population around 1890. And at that point, it was uh, a thriving town, essentially. But by the mid-1900s, it began to see uh, kind of a sharp decline because the demand for anthracite coal dropped. So that meant that a lot of those mining jobs moved out of town. And by 1950, uh, the population was around 2,000. It was still a nice enough place to live and raise a family at that point. But in just about another decade, things were going to start going very badly. 
for the entire town. Um, anthracite coal is really important to the story because of its value, essentially. It's a hard coal. It's has the highest carbon content. It has the fewest impurities, the highest energy density, and it has the highest ranking of all coals. So it costs essentially two to three times as much as regular coal. So you could see why it would be important to the town. It was, you know, mm -hmm. essentially the, the only thing that kept like the part of industry that kept that town going. So the actual mine fire, I said it happened in 1962. Well, it happened because um, there were local firefighters that uh, they were going to help clean up uh, part of the landfill. So, and they had done this actually every year prior, uh, but they did it around, excuse me, they did it around Memorial Day. Um, and because the town had a Memorial Day celebration and they wanted to get everything looking nice. So they had done this in pre previous years, but the landfill had been in a different location on those previous years. And in 1962, when the fire happened, uh, essentially what the firefighters did is they, they set the landfill on fire to clean it up, clear it of trash. But they didn't know that the landfill was, or maybe they, they did know, but it's kind of, it's, it's a back and forth debate about what really happened, how the fire really started. But this is one of, out, out of all the research I did, this is one of the more prevalent theories of what happened, was that they were cleaning up the landfill, they set the landfill on fire to get rid of all the trash, but the landfill was on top of an old strip mining pit. So on those previous years, when they put out the fire, the fire was just extinguished. There was no problem. The trash was gone. Fire was gone. This year, however, because it was on top of that old strip mining pit, when they put out the fire, it wasn't fully extinguished because it was able to enter through basically an unsealed opening in the pit and that allowed the fire to enter and it moved under underground and there's a whole labyrinth underground of abandoned coal mines so time went on and the fire just grew and grew and spread and it couldn't be contained um and I should say that the, the theory about the, the firefighters setting the landfill on fire, that came from a book written by David DeCock, and it was called Fire Underground. So like I said, that's the, most, that's the most prevalent theory, but this fire just continued spreading. Um, it, it, it directly started affecting the residents because... Uh, it would, it would take still a while longer, but by the 1970s, by the end of the 1970s, the residents of the town began to realize that something was really wrong. One of the residents took um, a dipstick and inserted it into the gasoline in his tank 
and found that the temperature was just way above what it should be. So mm-hmm. then they started realizing that uh, this fire was, you know, affecting people. They might have known that it was going on, but they didn't really know until, you know, like I said, the late 1970s that it was having a really bad effect on the town. So by the early 1980s, uh, the carbon monoxide gas had started seeping into people's actual homes and sinkholes were beginning to open up in the ground. There was actually a story in uh, something that happened in 1981 on Valentine's Day. There was a boy who was 12 years old. His name was Todd Dombowski, and he was just playing in his backyard And all of a sudden, the ground caved in and he fell into this humongous sinkhole. The sinkhole was four feet wide and 150 feet feet deep. (laughs) So, yeah, he's just going about his business trying to, you know, I don't know, be a kid and play. And yeah, he almost dies. The only way that he saved himself was he grabbed hold of some tree roots until his cousin was able to help pull him out of the sinkhole. Mm-hmm. sinkhole. Jeez. And that, that's the only way he was able to survive. So they found out afterwards that the sinkhole was filled with a very dangerous level, a lethal level, basically, of carbon monoxide. And shortly after that incident... Todd and the rest of his family decided to leave Centralia. Uh, And that would actually be. (laughs) That would mean. I hope you would after that, but, (laughs) but, you know, some people, some people did stay. So that's the thing in, in 1984. So this would be three years actually after the incident with Todd and the sinkhole but people began to leave Centralia. Uh, they actually did have a, a voluntary program that was funded uh, by the government where uh, the families would accept buyout offers for their properties to move somewhere else. And it was a lot of money then. Even then, they, they allocated like over $40 million in the, in the early 1980s to, to get people to leave. But... Um, like I said, not everybody left. Uh, in 1992, the state of Pennsylvania used eminent domain to take control of all the property within the town. So that meant that all the remaining buildings would be condemned and the residents would be asked to leave. So like I, like I said just before, many of the residents did leave, but a few wanted to stay and they sued for the right to stay. So that would bring up another another problem of lawsuits that were happening, and they lasted for almost another two decades after that because Please. the town's population was declining, obviously, uh, because of these reasons, because of the government, you know, giving them money, buyouts, and also... Uh, like I said, using eminent domain to essentially force people from their homes. Um, but that's what would happen. Um, some people wanted 
really, really wanted to stay. So in 2013, um, which, you know, was not that long ago, but uh, now we're 2021 and it does seem long ago. (laughs) So, but the lawsuit ended in 2013 and the eight remaining residents were allowed to stay as long as they lived. So if they died, then immediately the government, the state would seize their land and they would just level the house. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, as long as they're living, they're, they're okay to stay there. Um, only a few buildings, of course, remain today. Uh, the str- there's empty streets, a few homes, graveyards, and a church are all that's left of Centralia. So, like I said, it was um, once once a very thriving town, um, but now it's essentially one of your modern day ghost towns. But there are still people living there. Centralia wow. zip code was eliminated in 2002. So that was part of the, when, um, after they were using eminent domain and they were condemning buildings, they figured, well, you know, there's not enough people that live in this town anymore. So we're just going to get rid of the zip code. <laughs> it sounds kind of funny. I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine. But, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what, what their idea was. And, and some people theorize that um, they might've been pushing hard for people to evacuate the town uh, because they were interested in that anthracite coal that's under mm. underground. However, I don't know why they'd be so interested in the coal when there's still a fire burning and the noxious gases are coming up and affecting everyone. Yeah. But, you know, it's just a theory. Um, the mine fire still continues to burn to this day. It burns mainly on the south ridge of town. There's a strong smell of sulfur in the air and the steam puts a gray filter over the sky. Uh, I even thought this was really interesting that um, winter in Centralia is basically, they called it, quote, a land of fire and ice. So of course that makes me think of Game of Thrones, but <laughs> it's, it's, much more, it's much more real and not as, um, not as exciting, but uh, <laughs> the, they call it that because there's super cold air, but the ground is hotter than a sauna. It's been reported that in some places, the ground is over 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Jeez. So, yeah, that's pretty hot. <laughs> so, um, wow. that, that must be that must be pretty crazy to be walking around in the winter time. And like it says, the air is super cold, but then the ground you're walking on is hotter than hell, literally. So yeah, I don't know. That's pretty crazy. Um, I was also interested to know that because, you know, I had heard of Centralia prior to, to um, doing the research and I was really excited to, to be doing it because I did know about it, but I didn't know that Centralia is only one of 38 known 
active mining fires in Pennsylvania alone. Oh, so, geez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only That's one good. of 38 known. Yeah. And like I said, that's just in the state of Pennsylvania. But then I found out that these mine fi mining fires, they happen all over the world. So it's not just here. Like there's several that are notable. Like uh, one that sticks out in my mind was in India, for instance. Um, but they're all over the place. So it's just not something that that I knew about. I knew about Centralia, but I thought it was like a one-off type of thing, you know? Yeah. It just goes to show how much like I knew about mining. I mean, nothing at all. So <laughs> it's like mining and the mining fires. Yeah. So it's not just, not just Centralia, uh, but it's the most, you know, the one that's most talked about because of the pop culture references that I'll mention in a bit, but uh, experts say that this fire could burn for another century, at least. Please. I mean, that's just, I can't believe that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, there was, a, and there is, I'm sorry, there is an estimated, it's believed to be that there's an estimated population of around 11 people today in Centralia. So that would, well, it's actually from, from 2020, but close enough. So yeah, there's still not a lot of people living there. Um, let's see. Uh, oh yeah. So Pennsylvania route 61, I brought that up and I said I would get back to it. Now I'm getting back to it. Uh, it up until recently, it was known as Graffiti Highway. Mm -hmm. And it was actually part of the one of the main roads to get to Centralia. But it was closed in 1993 due to fire damage. So essentially, it was just, if you can imagine a stretch of highway, freeway, roadway, whatever you call it from whatever region you are. <laughs> it was a cracked uh, roadway. And there were vents where steam were coming out. Um, it was a definite draw for graffiti artists. And they essentially covered the entire roadway with paint. So it was, apart from Centralia being someplace that was a ghost town, you know, essentially, even though there's still people living there, it's like a ghost town. People want to see that. It's a curiosity. But the road going to it, Pennsylvania Route 61, Graffiti Highway, was an attraction all of its own. Um, everybody wanted to add to it or come and see the graffiti that was already there. But sadly, uh, if you haven't been there already, you won't get to see it because Graffiti Highway is no more as of very recently um, after the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, they, the, the owners, they wanted to discourage tourists from coming. So they covered the entire road in dirt with the idea to plant trees and grass on top. Uh, 
so far, I don't know if they've gotten to the trees and grass part of it, but the dirt is there. So <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's kind of, I, I can't say because I'm not a resident and obviously they have their own reasons for doing that. It sounds like it could get out of hand. But if you Google, you know, the images, you'll see it certainly looked much more interesting with all the graffiti on it. I don't know. I mean, I'm a fan of, you know, urban art and. I mean, I guess it's a little bit different when it's on a roadway, maybe, but it certainly looked more colorful and interesting before. Let's put it that way. So I don't know that that was certainly up to the residents, but I kind of wish I would have been able to see that because I probably would have tried to see it one day. But oh, well, it's no more. So it will only be in memory and Google. It'll be forever, obviously. So <laughs> um, There's also a legend about Centralia, which I thought was really interesting and I wanted to share with everybody. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's the mining fire that happened, no matter which way anyone believes it happened, if they believe the fire fire started it or it happened a number of other ways, bottom line is nobody really knows what happened and it's a lot of theories, but I thought this legend was interesting. Some of the locals believe that in 1869, Father Daniel Ignatius McDermott, he was the first Roman Catholic priest living in Centralia, but they believe that he cursed the land in retaliation for being assaulted by three members of the Molly Maguires. And the Molly Maguires were... Uh, Irish 19th century secret society. They were known for their activism among Irish Americans and Irish immigrant coal miners in Pennsylvania. But they were also known to be very violent, hence assaulting the priest. Uh, so their violent conflicts would lead to convictions for murder and many of the leaders would eventually be hang hung uh, by execution in 1877. But like I said, Father uh, Father Daniel was assaulted by three members of the Molly Maguires. And at that point, he said that there would be, quote, a day when St. Ignatius, Roman Catholic Church, would be the only structure remaining in Centralia. And he actually wouldn't be too far from the truth that's why I thought it was so interesting because the legend actually ties into the fact, and it's it's not called the Saint Ignatius Saint Ignatius Roman Catholic Church anymore, but it is still a Catholic church. It's a Ukrainian Catholic church. It's called the Assumption of Blessed Virgin Mary, but that is the only building that has been un completely unaffected by the fire, and. That is the reason for that, uh, other than maybe the legend, is that there's solid rock underneath the foundation of the church, not coal. Oh, wow. So it wouldn't be in danger of collapse due to the fire. But, you know, how would how would anybody know that at the time? And so I just thought it was really interesting because it was kind of almost a, a prediction in a way. You know, so if you believe in mm -hmm. Father Daniel's uh, 
curse, then yeah, the only thing that <laughs> hasn't been affected is the church. So I just thought it was interesting. Um, now today there's uh, an annual Centralia cleanup day where volunteers will collect illegally dumped trash in the area. And as recently as April, 2021, there were 250 apple trees that were planted by volunteers around Centralia to help restore the town's ecosystem and wildlife habitats. So there are efforts to kind of, you know, repair some of the, some of the damage that's been done, you know, uh, the only thing that they can't repair is the fire burning underground. And there's lots of theories as to what they could do. Um, I read some things about they're trying to think about using the heat as like some kind of heating source, you know, like a geothermal heating source. But uh, so far, all of these efforts haven't been successful. And like I said, the experts say that it's probably not very likely that, you know, this fire is going to go out anytime soon, even despite everybody's best efforts. And th there has been a lot of effort put into it, but, you know, it's just, just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Um, the popular culture references that I said I would get back to, uh, it was Centralia was used as a model for fictional ghost towns and depictions of hell. Uh, some of the more popular examples, Dean Koontz's Strange Highways, Silent Hill, of course. Most people have heard of Silent Hill, a uh, film adaptation. There was a 1982 PBS documentary called Centralia Mindfire. And I thought this was really interesting, too, because I didn't know about this reference, uh, that Centralia was the setting of the 1991 film Nothing But Trouble, starring Chevy Chase and Dan wow. Aykroyd. <laughs> yeah. It was apparently set in the fictional town of Valkenvania, based on Centralia. So that one was definitely one that I did, did not know. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure I actually haven't seen the film, but I've heard of it. And with those two, it's obviously probably a comedy, right? So yeah, that one's gotta be pretty. pretty I, I have not seen that either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's gotta be pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, that was, that's basically the tale of Centralia and I got uh, most of my research from um, Pennsylvania websites like uh, centraliapennsylvania.org, uncoveringpennsylvania.com, and um, history.com, and Wikipedia, of course. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's still the town still standing. Like I said, it's it's estimated to have about eleven residents today. Um, even though they covered over Highway 61 uh, with dirt, you can still get there on foot. Um, they do. The town does accept visitors. Um, you can you can go there, but um, they ask you to obviously be respectful of the residents that are still living there, 
and um you know because they're still there and that's where they live <laughs> but it made me think of um it made me think of other disasters like chernobyl for instance in uh pripyat uh, i don't think i'm pronouncing it right but pripyat ukraine uh so that's you know right outside of the town right outside of where one of the reactors uh blew up and you know i don't think there's still people living there but there were still people living there for a while even if even after the horrible um explosion of chernobyl so if you can imagine i mean uh centralia thank goodness it's not exactly like chernobyl but it's you know there's still noxious gases coming out of out of yeah. the ground the coal burning is not good i mean it's not it's not what's supposed to be happening so you can imagine that you know i don't know if any of those residents of the town have any health problems but they certainly could you know so uh but they're adamant that they don't want to leave so the government's not going to force them i guess so <laughs> i don't know a crazy situation for them to be in so yeah kind of reminds me of the lady and i don't know if you've seen dante's peak and she like won't leave her cabin oh. and you know then all of a sudden lava oh, yeah. comes through her side window and yeah <laughs> <laughs> right it's like are you gonna get the hint that maybe yeah maybe we should there's not live here anymore there's noxious gases there's sinkholes there's you yeah. know all this crazy stuff happening but yeah i don't know they i i don't know what that would be like since i have never been in that situation but i'm thinking yeah. i probably would have taken the money and moved somewhere else just yeah. me personally <laughs> Yeah. So Same. I don't know. I, I feel like that, some, people, yeah. some people are really tied to the land. I can understand that definitely. But yeah, at the point when it's it's causing all these kind of health problems and and you know, uh just safety problems in general, uh mm -hmm. you know, that would that would have moved me, but you know, to each each their own, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Won't be moved by any kind of government or anything else. But no, good for them. I mean, they really did. They they fought for that land and the right to stay there. So, you know, I don't know. You got to give yeah. give them props for that, too. You know, for standing yeah. standing their ground. Um, That's true. Especially if there's no land. There's no like, yeah, we're going to get in there and but if it was yeah. like hey we have this idea of how to extinguish this whole thing we just need to you know like a fumigation tent or something you know like well maybe there there you know, is a plan but they can't exactly do anything with people living there well knowing that there's fires like this everywhere around the world i don't think there is a yeah. You know, it doesn't seem like there is, or maybe it's so, it costs so much to do this that, like, I don't know, it's just, it's weird because you see those videos where, like, they do those, like, foam things and they just shut down a place, like, you know, they just extinguish everything, you know, but 
no plans. What foam? Like, what are you talking about foam thing? I don't know. Like they they now have these like foam things to shut down fires like instantaneously. Oh yeah. Oh. They can to do that. You know, they have giant foam tanks ready just in case. Yeah. Know. So maybe. I don't know if you should put foam into the ground thing too. under yeah, the exactly. earth. It's a bit different, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think they just wanted well, to make sure people are safe, you know, and they can't exactly investigate the area with people living there, you know. Yeah. Anyways, right. Oh, good. Thanks. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, no, no. You're, you're okay. I was just going to add, yeah, they tried, like, to speak to your point that you just said. Yeah, they they tried really super hard to get everyone to leave. Um, but, like I said, there some were staying, so that, that wasn't a possibility. But, but, yeah, it would be interesting to see what would happen if everyone did just leave. So... Um, yeah, I don't know that, that would, that's a weird situation. So it still remains and, and you can visit it if you're interested and, um, I don't know, just be careful, wear your mask, I guess. <laughs> you don't want any fumes <laughs> entering your body. So if you're going to go proceed with caution, but, um, uh, tons, tons of people, you know, uh, visited, the graffiti highway and took plenty of pictures. So you can look those up on Google there. Some of them are kind of funny. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. That's it. Well, this was a good episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, let's wrap it up. Uh, thanks all, everyone for listening to our episode. The one with disasters. Um, and, uh, listen to us on Apple podcast, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, please share this podcast with your friends, get the <laughs> word out there, tell your weird friends about our weird little podcast here. And, yeah. uh, if you have any suggestions, email us at my weird little podcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at my weird little podcast. Yeah, stay spooky, everyone. Ooh. Yay.